Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to this week's Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here with John Mitchell. We've got a really great show lined up for you today. We're, of course, in the midst of our conference preview schedule. We'll be looking at the Big Ten Conference this week. In our first segment, we'll do some overview of everything that's going on with the Big Ten. And then in our second segment, we have a special treat for you. I'll be sitting down with Scott Jedlicka, an assistant professor of sports management at Washington State, to talk about a website that he's been developing around COVID-19 in college football. So that should be really exciting as well. And then in our last two segments, we'll take a look, as usual, at each team in these conference races and see how things might shake out in the Big Ten. Before we dive in, though, as always, i got to ask, John, how are you doing this week? I'm doing good, trying to stay inside in the cool air conditioning and uh, happy to be sitting inside recording this podcast right now. Yeah, I envy you because our house doesn't have air conditioning, and it's been an interesting summer for it, uh, especially since I'm coming from the west coast to Pennsylvania, where humidity is a thing. It's been a long time yeah. since I had to deal with humidity, so I, I envy you. Yeah, I, I do not envy sitting in a, a non-air-conditioned house in humidity. That is no good. You know, thank goodness if we've at least got a basement in this place that stays pretty cool. So that's where I do most of my work during the summertime. <laughs> I understand. Well, we're talking Big Ten this week, John. And obviously we've talked about it from the Pac-12 angle in terms of the move to a conference-only schedule. And, you know, I'm just wondering, how do you think this is all going to shake out with the Big Ten this year? You know, it's it's a good question. Um, I think, again, I, I feel like every week that goes by, I get more and more worried that we're not going to have a season at all. Uh, if you look at particularly what's happening uh, with Major League Baseball right now, which finally got their season started, and then after three games, they've got an entire team that's having to cancel um, games, the Miami Marlins, because they've got 10 or 12 people tested positive for COVID, which then impacted the teams that they were playing against and whatnot. So several games getting canceled there already. And this is a more, to me, baseball is a more um, interesting test case for what college football might look like more so than the NBA is because you can't have a bubble in college football like the NBA has been able to theoretically work out. Everything seems to be okay there for now. So you know, I, I don't know, right? Obviously, the conference-only schedule gives some flexibility, but I'm still very concerned that um, I, I imagine the almighty dollar wins out, Zach. At some point, we do have some sort of season, uh, but once again, it just doesn't feel like the the moral or rational move at this point. I'm with you there. You know, as, as much as I love college football and everyone out there listening it's probably pretty aware that we love college football. We wouldn't talk about it incessantly like we do. We wouldn't write about it. We wouldn't spend 14 hours every Saturday watching games from noon kickoff to, you know, Pac-12 after dark if we didn't love this. Um, and in my, you know, it, it, I think you're right. I think Major League Baseball serves as a really interesting test case for this because, you know, you mentioned the NBA has their bubble in place. 
you know, Magic City chicken wings notwithstanding. <laughs> but, you know, I we've seen bubbles work. Um, the women's, you know, women's soccer just finished up their tournament in Sandy, Utah, without a single positive case, um, you know, once teams were there on site. A similar thing has been going down with Major League Soccer. So we've seen both men's and women's soccer be able to pull that sort of thing off. The NBA, ostensibly, is is doing a decent job with it right now. But, yeah, Major League Baseball, because they don't have this lockdown situation, it's it's really interesting to see. You know, I, I made a joke about Lou Williams, but, how you know, there's going to be a college kid that gets a craving you know, to go get some wings or something else late night. We've seen plenty of video footage from, you know, campus communities around the country where kids are going out to campus bars already before school is even technically in session. You know, this is still summer session and we're seeing this. So once campuses bring everybody back, it just, it, it exponentially increases the risk factor. So you know, I, I guess the one question becomes, how long will it be until we see actual cancellations of full seasons? And I think it's something, whether or not we like to think about it, we need to just keep that in the back of our mind because it's a very real possibility. Yeah, I mean, we've said that these previews could be theoretical more than anything else. Uh, we're going to keep trudging forward with them until we're we see anything otherwise, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely hard to be optimistic right now. It really is. But, you know, let's move on and, and at least try to be a little bit optimistic. But let's see, we're missing about 10 or so Power 5 contests between the Big Ten and other Power 5 opponents. We're losing a lot of Group of 5 opportunities, especially for MAC teams, since that's a lot of what gets arranged between... Uh, Big Ten schools and other local smaller schools. And, you know, we also have a fair number of independent and FCS games that are just out the door. So, you know, out of those Power 5 opportunities, there were some great ones on the schedule. We talked about Ohio State at Oregon when we and uh, Michigan at Washington when we talked about the Pac-12. But I'm wondering what other ones on that schedule really disappoint you that we won't get to see. Yeah, I mean... The coolest game on the schedule, obviously, was probably Notre Dame, Wisconsin, and Lambeau, just from the aesthetics of those two programs playing at at the Packers Stadium. So not getting to see that, even if they somehow worked out to be able to play it and then play it somewhere else, that would be disappointing, because that's one that you and I have been talking about for the entire offseason was, you know, Notre Dame, Wisconsin. Obviously, you being a, a Wisconsin fan as well, that stings for you, particularly with being a Wisconsin and growing up a Packers fan as well. So that one was definitely sitting there on the tee for your aesthetic purposes in the very least. So that's the coolest game, I feel like. Obviously, Ohio State-Oregon was probably the best game that was on the schedule that we lose. Um, but, I mean, there was plenty of interesting ones. I think Penn State-Virginia Tech would have been a pretty interesting game earlier in the season um, with both of those teams really trying to take the next step. So it's... It's sad to just look at the list, to be honest. I'm staring at it right now, and it's, it's really hard to, 
to look at. It's really depressing to think about that we're not going to get to see these really great games. Yeah, and last week we talked about the rivalry game between Iowa State and Iowa. Having an in-state rivalry like that fall off the schedule is tough. You know, we had games like Syracuse-Rutgers, the old Big East classic is now gone. Uh, You know, we talked about the impact of Maryland-West Virginia on Morgantown and the economy there not getting that big game. So a lot of games are, are, you know, it's going to be really disappointing, and it could very well have an impact on how we look at the college football playoff if it indeed happens. Quickly running down before we go to this first break, though, John, I'm also curious, what what group of five opportunities are you going to miss most? You know, looking at it, Cincinnati at Nebraska in week four, you know, the Bearcats had a shot against the Big Ten foe last year and got beaten pretty soundly by Ohio State. But this would have been a game that really gave them an opportunity to get that big Big Ten victory because Nebraska, no offense to Scott Frost and company, is a pretty big step down from that Ohio State team last year. So not Cincinnati not getting that shot in that game um, is kind of a bummer. And then also the season opener between Florida Atlantic and Minnesota, I thought could have been pretty interesting. We've gotten to see Willie Taggart's opener with a really talented Florida Atlantic team left over from the Lane Kiffin years. And then a Minnesota team coming back with a lot of talent trying to get over the hump in the Big Ten. So I think that would have been another really interesting early season contest. I'm with you. You know, those are both really sad ones to see off the schedule. And then there's a couple of games also that were due to happen at Purdue that I think are really disappointing as well, especially from the standpoint of group of five teams trying to play into a New Year's Six Bowl. You had Memphis going there in week two, you know, and I think Memphis obviously has a real chance in the American Athletic Conference. And then a team that you were really high on, Air Force, also lost their chance to play at Purdue. And I think, you know, for both of them, that's a real disappointment in terms of being able to set the tone for a season. And then, of course, you know, App State at Wisconsin, the chance to possibly have another big house moment, as much as it would kill me as a Badgers fan. You know, Appalachian State was right there in the thick of the group of five race last year. And, you know, while you how to feel that Louisiana can pip them this year. I think that's a huge game off the Mountaineer schedule that could cut against them in a big way. Yeah, a huge opportunity loss for the entire Sun Belt in that game, to be honest. Because even if Louisiana did overtake Appalachian State, how much better does their resume look if they beat an Appalachian State that just beat Wisconsin earlier in the season? Exactly. One last group we need to look at are those FCS games and the independents that could have also, you know, been on the board. Uh, Are there any that really stick out to you as, you know, really harmful to the teams that don't get to play those games anymore? Yeah, I mean, BYU losing a couple prime opportunities obviously stands out. Having uh, a home game against Michigan State and a road game against Minnesota canceled. Um, that's obviously, particularly teams that don't play in conferences, losing these games is, is really big because now they've got to scramble to try to fill their schedule as best they can. And if every team goes conference only, it becomes that much more difficult for every independent not named Notre Dame who seems to have a good enough relationship, obviously, with the ACC to be able to fill out a schedule 
Uh, but a team like BYU doesn't have that kind of con- conference connection. They already lost, obviously, the Utah game um, with the Pac-12 going. They lose two more prime opportunities right there. So um, that those were the ones that really stood out from the independent ranks. Yeah, I also think of UConn. You know, what what a year to choose to go independent. It, 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 you couldn't pick worse possible timing to be leaving the American Athletic Conference for your own go. Because, you know, they had a road game at Illinois come off the schedule, and they had a home game there in East Hartford come off against Indiana. So losing those two games, especially losing a home game against a Big Ten opponent, could really hurt the bottom line for the Huskies. Yep. At least UConn won't lose as many games as they lost last year. That that they can take to the bank this time. Yeah, you know, there's silver linings in all of this, I guess, for some teams where we have to have a little bit of gallows humor to to bring some kind of perspective to this. But anything else sticking in your mind about the Big Ten at large, John, before we head to our first break? No, you know, I I, I think it's. Um... The one larger thing I was thinking about is how the what changes when the NCAA makes their decision on fall sports championships, right? Because does that make conferences decide that it's not worth, or te- individual teams decide that it's not worth playing the season if there's no shot at you know playing for a national championship? Obviously, a lot of teams go into their season without that really being front of mind anyway. That's another thing because they think they delayed their decision a couple weeks, but, I mean, time is quickly approaching to make that. What does a college football season look like where that doesn't exist? Yeah, it, it it's a mess all around. It really is, and we're, we're still not certain about any of this yet. I think that's one thing we also need to just keep in mind is so much can still happen between now and, you know, a month from now when the season's supposed to be kicking off. On that note, everybody, we're going to take our first quick break. When we come back, I'll be talking with Scott Jedlica about his uh, COVID and college football website. So thanks for tuning in. We'll be right back. Welcome back after the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We have a special treat here for our second segment today. We're stepping away from our Big Ten previews for a moment to meet with Scott Jedlica. He's an assistant professor of sports management at Washington State University. And he has been uh, doing a wonderful public service recently of maintaining the covidcfb.com website where he has been tracking uh, COVID-19 data across the country, looking specifically at those communities uh, that have FBS and FCS football, which goes right with us here at the podcast. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of this project, Scott, I just have to ask you, what inspired you to take up the mantle upon yourself to collect all this data and, and put this all together? Well, you know, it was a confluence of things, I think. Back in the spring, a few months ago, seems like several years ago, you know, uh, we, we were at, we were at home, sheltering in place, uh, stay-at-home order, trying to work and do childcare and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, you're on the computer a lot. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, was, as, as people were uh, starting to pay attention to this because it seems it, it, it really wasn't that long ago that this was like oh is this a thing you know oh it looks like things are bad in china 
you know, uh, you know, the the data infrastructure was starting to take shape, and you know, you saw all these different reports coming out, and and so just sort of my own curiosity, you know, I was digging into some of those numbers. Second was obviously, you know, because I'm a sport management professor, I'm interested in what sport organizations are doing, and particularly right now, how they're responding to this uh, situation. Um, and so, being in higher education the NCAA's response and how universities were going to deal with the fall season was certainly on the minds of a lot of people, even, even several months ago. And, uh, and, and, and thirdly was uh, sort of our distinct experience being in the state of Washington, which was uh, really the first state to uh, be hit hard uh, by the pandemic, but uh, where we're at in Eastern Washington, we really didn't see that, at least not in March and April. So, so we had, we had the kind of experience where uh, our relatives, my wife and I, um, are from, you know, the Midwest and the South, and they're like, oh, you know, Washington State, you know, it's, it seems really bad there, you know, you know, how's it going? And we're like, oh, you know, we don't have any cases, uh, you know, things are, things are okay. Um, so, you know, the, the fact that, you know, not everywhere in a state is impacted the same, uh, at least not at the same time, was sort of a third thing. And so, you know, all of these different kind of uh, factors came together and like, well, you know, we should really start looking at using this data and uh, trying to, uh, you know, see uh, or at least observe uh, what's going on uh, across the country uh, as, as we begin to uh, prepare for the fall semester, fall sports season, things like that. Certainly. And that actually, you know, that speaks exactly to something I wanted to ask you to explain a little bit further for our listeners as well. In your data set, you're looking specifically at combined statistical areas rather than uh, looking solely on a state or even a county level. And I, you know, could you just explain for everybody why you think this is the most relevant way that we can be looking at the impact of COVID-19 on communities where football may or may not be played. Yeah, again, I think part of this motivated by our experience living in a, in a border uh, town, so to speak. Uh, we're on the Washington-Idaho border. But if you look at some of the big projects that uh, have been undertaken to collect and aggregate a lot of data, it's either at the county level or it's at the state level. And there's not a lot of in-between. You know, that's, that can be useful for a lot of purposes, I think. But, you know, if you're looking at, uh, you know, a geographic area, um, especially an area that's going to be uh, ostensibly having large or even moderately sized events, bringing in people from, uh, you know, outside of the county's borders, uh, you know, you, you kind of have to strike a middle ground between, you know, the state level and the, uh, and the county level. And so a combined statistical area is uh, what the Census Bureau defines as kind of a collection of different metro and micropolitan areas. So we're probably mostly familiar with uh, metro areas, you know, a, a, in, in an area that has sort of an urban core and then maybe a collection of counties around it. Um, a combined statistical area is sort of the next level up from that. It's a collection of different metro areas, or in the case of smaller communities, micropolitan areas. And uh, these are defined in terms of uh, 
the workforce essentially um because if uh if there's an exchange of commuters um that uh that that work in one area but live in but live in the other if that meets a certain threshold then an area gets defined as a combined statistical area and so i thought well if we're looking at you know people coming in to work at universities and even more specifically on game day you know vendors coming in media coming in uh fans from maybe um a big urban area coming out to the college town on the periphery this is a really relevant lens through which to view the dynamics of the pandemic because if you know just take WSU's example if things are going pretty good here in Whitman County but Lataw County over in Idaho where the University of Idaho is is having a big you know outbreak or whatever that's a problem for us and that's not going to be captured if you just look at Whitman County or even if you just look at the state of Washington um and so i figured that's probably a better uh using the statistical areas is probably a better way of uh capturing what's going on and how the pandemic data uh plays upon the possibility of football that totally makes sense and i think it's it, it's a really relevant approach especially you know being here in state college you see penn state games draw people from all around the state but very specifically you know kind of in a in a bullseye pattern kind of spreading out yeah. from state college as the center. So I think that is a really um unique and relevant way that we can be parsing out this data. One thing I really do want to ask you about um the government recently shifted how it's reporting or to whom you know state and counties are reporting sending that data to the Department of Health and Human Services rather than to the CDC. Mm-hmm. And how has that impacted your ability to continue conducting this research and updating your your data it's uh it threw a wrench in things uh at least momentarily uh up until uh i guess maybe last week or so uh i was just taking numbers uh directly from the cdc's dashboard for hospital capacity because that's what we're talking about here is the is the hospital capacity numbers And so how this works in basic terms is that uh hospitals uh report or reported their you know current capacity numbers to the CDC and the CDC would publish those three times a week on their uh on their website. And you see go on there and just look at a state and say, you know, here's the here's the point estimate for capacity, uh here's the confidence interval and it's all very nice and straightforward. And uh and, and yeah about a week or 10 days ago uh at the direction of the president or his administration the uh the directive was that hospitals now were going to report their numbers directly to the Department of Health and Human Services and HHS was going to publish this data um or at least collect it. And and yeah there's there there's all sorts of discussion about the political parameters of that decision um you know is this a move to limit what the public knows about hospital capacity things like that for my purposes it it just sort of made it more difficult because um at first there was no public data um as the transition was happening and even now the HHS dashboard is somewhat suspect uh, <laughs> i have been kind of keeping an eye on it but there's some really weird things going on like right now it's reporting that 97% of all hospital beds in California are full which 
would seem like that would be a bigger news story if that was actually the case. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't think that they've quite ironed out all the kinks there. So what I've done instead is uh, try to rely on different uh, sources uh, to estimate hospital capacity. Um, so instead of just looking at those estimates from the CDC, what I'm doing instead is looking at uh, state level reported hospitalizations uh, for uh, COVID and then um, looking at that as a percentage of overall hospital capacity. I was able to track down a, a third party data set that kind of tracks uh, uh, hospitals and, and uh, hospital capacity nationwide. Uh, so that's what I'm doing for hospital capacity right now. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was kind of a, I hadn't paid as close attention to it in the run-up to the switch. Um, so it kind of took me by surprise, but uh, I was able to fashion a solution fairly quickly. Yeah, you know, having followed along with it as it goes, it's amazing how much you were able to continue doing what you do and make it as seamless as possible despite all those sort of shifts in the data sets. And I think one of the coolest things that you've been building out of this are the daily report cards that you've been issuing, you know, by conference, by, uh, and, you know, breaking it down FBS, FCS. And mm -hmm. could you explain uh, some of the methodology that's going behind the grades that you're giving these teams? Yeah. Um, when I first started the project, I was just uh, focused on the data visualization part of it, but um, throughout, uh, even as I transitioned to doing the report cards, um, uh, I've been focusing on uh, the NCAA's actual guidelines that were published um, back in early May, because um, the NCAA has been you know, keeping a pace, you know, because they have to deal with not just football, but all, all, all sports. And, and, um, and so they have been publishing kind of guidance for member schools uh, all along the way here. And uh, the very first publication that came out before we got to the point we're at now with, you know, testing protocols and things like that was how do you, or when do you uh, begin to resume activity? When is it safe? How do you know? And of course these aren't binding guidelines by any stretch, but uh, the NCAA recommended that, uh, you know, for, for, for schools to even begin resuming activity. Um, you need to see a downward uh, trajectory in terms of new cases. Uh, you need to see um, a downward trajectory in terms of positive tests. And then you need to see sort of adequate hospital capacity um, that you know, if you were gonna restart activity, you weren't gonna cause an outbreak that was gonna overwhelm um, already stressed healthcare systems. And so initially I was just you know, trying to visualize those different metrics. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess um, maybe sometime in June, I don't remember exactly when. And I thought, well, you know, the data viz is, is great, you know, but not necessarily easy, at least not in terms of making policy or making decisions. And so I thought, well, you know, um, I'm a professor. Uh, I give grades and I know <laughs> make a grading scale and all that sort of good stuff. Um, so maybe I, I can just sort of do that for uh, these particular metrics. And and, and so, yeah, the, uh, the grading scale that I developed, you know, is sort of your standard A, B, C, D, F. And um, it's the uh, grades are driven by those three metrics. And so if you're, uh, you know, doing well in terms of, if your, you know, area is doing well in terms of uh, 
cases, if your uh, state's doing well in terms of testing, in terms of hospital capacity, you know, then you get an A or B and, um, and so on down the line. So I, I thought that would, you know, be, uh, you know, a more accessible way of uh, translating some of this data into something that uh, could be, you know, digestible, could be more straightforward um, for fans, for media, for uh, people actually making uh, calls about football. So yeah, it, it was uh, it was something that uh, it was just sort of a bulk of inspiration, I guess. And but uh, people really taken to it and really find it interesting and find it engaging. So I'm I've been pleased with how it's turned out. Yeah, you know, I think it was a really brilliant thing to do because, as you said, it makes it so translatable to just mm -hmm. you know anybody has seen a report card throughout the course of their life so they understand the basics of what these grades mean yeah and this week we're talking about the big 10 and one thing i think is really interesting when you look at the power five report card is you only have seven schools out of those 65 you know power five schools mm -hmm. that are ranked with an a or a b grade and five out of those seven are in big 10 country and, you know, the rest of those schools, with the exception of Indiana, are all at a C other, otherwise. Mm. Put, put you into a realm of speculation for a moment. Do you think there's been a better response to the pandemic in the Midwest? Or what do you think is impacting the high grades in the Big Ten relative to these other leagues? Yeah, I think that's, you know, primarily it is, if you just sort of look at the situation nationwide, um, the Midwest uh, and the Northeast, in particular, um, you know, this this latest surge in the pandemic hasn't really affected those regions quite as much. And you know, the Big Ten is really the only Power Five conference that has a meaningful presence in those areas. You know, you've got one or two schools uh, in the ACC or the Big Twelve, um, but you know, big time college football is uh, a Southern and Western thing. You know, if you look at uh, the schools playing football in the Northeast, they're, uh, you know, G5 on down. And so, uh, and so, yeah, I think, um, you know, the Big Ten has been lucky in that, you know, states like Michigan, uh, up until recently, Ohio, uh, Illinois, have been pretty good so far in terms of their response to the pandemic and, you know, their numbers, I, I suppose. And so, uh, and so, yeah, I think the Big Ten kind of stands apart from the other four uh, in terms of where it's at right now. And um, I, this is kind of a tangent a little bit, but I do also think it's interesting that uh, the places that haven't been hit quite as hard, um, like the Big Ten or uh, some of the smaller conferences of the Northeast, have also been the ones um, that have been quickest to uh, shut things down. And uh, I have some theories about why that might be, but we don't have to go into that if you don't want to. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Big Ten is sort of uh, an outlier, I guess, compared to the rest of the conferences in the Power Five. Yeah, it, it, it was one of those things, you know, over the past couple of weeks of following it, that's immediately stuck out to me how it seems like the Big Ten has had that better response. So thank you for, you know, offering your thoughts on why that might be. Yeah, um, it's uh, and it, and it has been um, somewhat of a downward slide um, of late. Go back uh, in my 
Twitter timeline. <laughs> I'm I'm actually working on um, putting out a, a time series of of uh, of the grades, um, so people can go back and look at how that's changed over time. But um, if if you go back even a couple weeks ago, um, there were more A's and B's in the Big Ten than there are now. I think um, Ohio's seen an uptick in cases. Indiana's seen an uptick in cases. Even Illinois um, has uh, their testing percentage has kind of flatlined a little bit. So even the Big Ten is not immune, uh, no pun intended, but from uh, from the effects of this. And so uh, it'll be worth keeping an eye on going forward. Certainly, yeah. You know, it, obviously these are all ongoing developments, and I, I think being able to visualize this data and being able to follow it over time is such a huge service to the public. Before we go, I have, you know, I just want to ask, what would you most like our listeners to take away from the work that you're doing with the COVID CFB website? I guess it's, uh, you know, a way of looking at the situation uh, outside of maybe the the narratives that have emerged around football and the possibility of playing football, because I know that that's kind of been a topic of debate of late is that, well, uh, conferences just want to play because they just want money. And the, and on the other side, you know, the, the media is blowing it out of proportion because they, you know, hate football and want to see it canceled. And, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, what the COVID CFB website uh, really offers is um, a snapshot of, uh, you know, what's actually going on and is based in, you know, actual, you know, organizational policy. Um, you know, again, these are, these are metrics that the NCAA said mattered um, yeah. uh, way back, uh, you know, uh, three months ago or so. And so I think that's kind of a, maybe a different lens or maybe a more objective lens to look at the situation and say, well, you know, um, if, uh, a particular area, a particular state is, you know, having a hard time with this, you know, then maybe that's cause for uh, pumping the brakes or for even, you know, taking more drastic measures um, and vice versa. Um, if uh, if uh, things are going okay and there are protocols that can be put in place to uh, keep athletes safe, to keep communities safe, um, then, you know, maybe there's a still a possibility of uh, having some games this fall. But, um but yeah, um, hopefully it uh, can rise above or at least exist outside of uh, the debates over, um, you know, it's the same sort of culture war stuff that, uh, uh, you know, envelops everything, right? Um, that you, you're either for the virus or against it, or I don't know. But, uh, you know, reality is a little more nuanced than that, I think. And uh, and, and yeah, I mean, and I, I don't envy the people having to make these calls, certainly. Because even, you know, the best data is only data. I mean, you still have to interpret it and make decisions. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's a tough call because uh, uh, you've seen the different numbers come out, I'm sure, of, you know, estimates of what a lost football season is going to mean um, in terms of lost revenue, in terms of jobs, in terms of scholarships, in terms of sports programs. You know, but, uh, you know, you have to sort of take that certainty on one hand, you know, and weigh it against the 
uncertain but probably worse potentially outcomes uh, on on the other hand and um, it's a it's a tough call but hopefully the website can at least provide a starting point I guess for uh, looking at what's actually going on and, and what is possible. Well, I think that's the most important part of it when you look at it is you've been very transparent about where you're getting this information. These aren't numbers that are made up out of thin air. And it's very dispassionate. You know, you have your metrics in place for how you're grading these teams and everything. And the metrics are the metrics. It's just mm-hmm. like a student going into the classroom and they have the rubric of how they're going to be graded. You, you can't fake it in that situation. And, and so I think that's been one of the, the biggest things I've really appreciated about following it over these past months. And, you know, I'd encourage fans to, to take a look at it because it does give you that real, you know, ground level look in a way, as we mentioned earlier, state data or even, you know, county data can't. Yeah, it's, um, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned transparency because that is another thing that I try to try to do um, is make it clear sort of where everything comes from um, and how I arrive at the conclusions I arrive at. And, you know, like, like a lot of people dealing with uh, COVID and data right now, um, it, it is kind of a on the fly learning experience um, in terms of, uh, you know, dealing with hiccups like the, uh, the uh, hospital data or, you know, looking at, well, maybe, you know, certain, you know, thresholds or metrics need to be adjusted, you know, based on what we know or what's considered safe. Um, so, yeah, it, it, that's, that, that's one thing I try to do as well is if I do change things or adjust things to kind of make it clear what it is that's being changed and, and, uh, and also why. Yeah, I think that's been really critical and and I really appreciate everything that you've been doing. So thank you so much for being here with us today, Scott. It, it's been a pleasure getting to talk to you and see this more. And, yeah, absolutely. And for all of you out there, I highly recommend going and checking it out. It's covidcfb.com. When we come back from our break, we'll be diving right back into Big Ten coverage. So stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everybody, to the Saturday Blitz podcast. I hope you enjoyed that brief interview I was able to have with Scott there. Uh, really great information about the COVID and college football website that I, I think we really need to keep looking at to inform how we look at the rest of the season and what's actually going to go down in college football. But let's shift back to our Big Ten preview now to to look a bit at the individual races. We'll be starting with the West, and just like we have been in our our past few previews, we'll be going in reverse order of how these teams finished last season in the conference standings. So, first team we have up is the Northwestern Wildcats, who finished dead last in the West with a 1-8 conference record and only three wins overall last season. Certainly wasn't the year that they expected there in Evanston, John. No, not after winning the Big Ten West the year before. This was the worst season um, they've ever had under Pat Fitzgerald. So if you're looking for a team 
that's going to bounce back in a big way in 2020. To me, it starts with Northwestern. Uh, just because we know Pat Fitzgerald's track record there. He's done a great job with the Wildcats. They also returned the most production out of any team in college football this season, so they bring back a lot. And I think, Zach, the big thing for them is defensively, they were still a pretty good team last year. They were 27th in SP Plus uh, defensive rankings last season. The problem was they couldn't move the ball on offense. They were 123rd in that same metric offensively. They averaged 12.7 12.7 points per game in Big Ten play last year. I think the big change this year is, though, that they are going to have steadier quarterback play with Peyton Ramsey transferring over from Indiana uh, to really um, steady that position because last year it was an absolute disaster for Northwestern. They couldn't um, move the ball on an offense, and a big part of that was they just couldn't um, throw the ball. I, they had six total touchdown passes last season. That's it That's the, for the whole season. So, you know, I think a big question, too, is are they going to have enough playmakers on offense to help Peyton Ramsey? It's hard to it's hard to tell with such poor quarterback play last year what of the holdover wide receivers are any good. I mean, Riley Lees looked pretty decent, but he's, you know, he was their leading receiver with 430 yards and a pair of touchdowns last season. So, um, I think we, I think getting Isaiah Bowser back after missing most of last season with an injury is big for that offense. And then I think we know this defense is going to be really good. They return a lot of talent. Uh, Patty Fisher and Blake Gallagher in the middle of that defense. They're two leading tacklers from last year. Probably as good of a pair of linebackers we have in the Big Ten this year. So I really expect Northwestern to take a pretty big step forward this year. I can't imagine we see another year like they had in 2019. Yeah, I totally agree with you, and I think it's really important to look at how good that defense actually was. You know, <clears throat> over the course of the season, they only they gave up less than 24 points per game. They were only giving opponents 335 yards. Both of those were ranked in the top third of the country. So, you know, that's obviously Pat Fitzgerald's calling card. His defenses have always been solid, but... Uh, you know, last year I had high hopes for this Northwestern team since they were getting Hunter Johnson, and that obviously did not pan out for them. They really hope that Peyton Ramsey will be a more steadying force, but you also have to wonder is that, you know, especially with not getting the amount of practices that we would expect with spring and everything else, how is, you know, how quickly will he be able to adjust to Northwestern? And you know, while I think I, I agree with you that this team can certainly elevate its gameplay, I don't think that defense with eighty percent of their their production returning, it's it's not going to fall off defensively. But everything needs to come together on that offensive side of the ball, and they also just need to be better on special teams all around. Whether it's punting, whether it's you know kickoff coverage, whether it's you know their actual kick units. Everything needs to come together better on that, you know, in that regard. Because we often talk about offense and defense, but they were also betrayed by their special teams across the board last season. So, ultimately, though, you know, I I like the chances of this team. I think the one thing that's going to hurt them is that they don't have Tulane, Central Michigan, and Morgan State to bolster their record and get them to bowl eligibility. Because, you know, even if the Pac-10 does schedule a 10th game, 
you know, they'd much rather get Rutgers than Michigan or and Ohio or Ohio State yeah. on their schedule, or even Indiana. You know, if they land Rutgers, they have a far better chance of getting to to five wins than they do if they land the Wolverines or the Buckeyes or, frankly, even the Hoosiers. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, it, I think it's a good point with Peyton Ramsey not having a whole lot of time to adjust. Uh, you know, I, luckily for him, this is luckily for Pat Fitzgerald. This is an experienced guy. You know, going to be a fifth-year senior, has had adverse circumstances to overcome. I mean, he wasn't Indiana's starting quarterback last year, but he got thrust into action when Michael Penix got hurt, and I mean, he responded really, really well. So, I'm a believer in Ramsey. I think he'll have a really good year. Um, and any um, improvement they get from that position will be massive for this team's chances. I totally agree with you there, and while I'm not certain that they can compete for the Big Ten West title, I, I think that we definitely see improvement from a team that comes into the season ranked 50th in preseason SP+. So, all across the board, I, I, I think hopes should be higher than they were at the end of last season there in Evanston. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll look back on last season as a one-year kind of blip and everything will be back to normal for Northwestern. Certainly. Another place where they're hoping it was just a one-year blip is Nebraska. And obviously it hasn't just been a one-year blip over the past couple of years, but last year they were tied for sixth at three and six in conference play. They lost the tiebreaker to Purdue by virtue of losing to Purdue, and they finished five and seven overall. Obviously not what Cornhuskers fans have been hoping for in the Scott Frost era, but at the same time, he had a lot of work to do when he got there to Lincoln. So do you think that the rebuilding effort for Frost and his crew is on track? And do you think that, you know, Nebraska can take advantage of a team that is top 20 in returning production to take that next leap? Yeah, I mean, I think Frost has been burdened with too high of expectations since getting to Nebraska. I mean, we talked about it in the preview last year. Nebraska was the media darling in the Big Ten West. A lot of people were projecting them to not just take a leap up the standings, but take the whole West division um, all together and play Ohio State for a Big Ten championship. But, I mean, this team's just not there yet, I don't think. Um, I think the rebuild is going okay. I I don't think Nebraska's ever going to be that 90s juggernaut that we saw. Um, I just don't see that happening again. I don't think they can recruit as well anymore. Uh, but, you know, this is a big year, I think, for Scott Frost. Another year where they finish under 500 would be very difficult for him. I think I don't think he's on the hot seat or anything like that yet. But a third straight under 500 season at Nebraska would probably put him on the hot seat going into 2021. Um, it really, I think, comes down to will Adrian Martinez finally be the quarterback he's been hyped to be? Because we've been hearing about him for two straight years that he was going to be a guy that competed for even a Heisman Trophy. And he hasn't given that production that I think Frost needs from the quarterback position for his team to be really good. He hasn't given him that McKenzie Milton production that he got at Central Florida or anything like that. So, you know, Martinez has to improve, particularly as a passer. He completed under 60% of his throws last year. And he only had 10 touchdowns to nine interceptions. So he's got to get better through the air. Um, and they had a big loss late in the process with J.D. Spillman leaving the team and transferring to TCU. That was their top receiver. So will they have someone who can 
step up in that spot alongside Wondell Robinson, who's one of the better all-purpose players in the Big Ten with his ability to catch passes and come out of the backfield as a runner. Um, so I, I think there's holes on defense as well. I think they've got a good uh, secondary for the Huskers this year, but they've got no returning player who had more than two and a half sacks last year on the front seven. So finding someone particularly who can replace Khalil Davis in the middle of that defense who had eight sacks last season for Nebraska is going to be big. But I don't know. I don't think this is the year that Nebraska takes a big step forward. I think they're going to be treading water for another season. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that's probably the case here. And as, as much offensive productivity as they return, they've got less than 60% of their defensive production from 2019 back. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag there. You hope that the offense elevates itself. Obviously losing Spielman hurts, um, but that defense is what really needs to step up. Because they gave away 388 yards a game and 28 points a game. You know, they they had 28.0 points per game, and they gave away 27.8 against. So when you're at that point, you're pretty much a 500 team. That that's the way it works. And I, you know, as I talked about it about Northwestern, but I have to bring it up here as well. Special teams were a huge Achilles heel for the Huskers last year. Uh, they they had five blocked kicks in 2019. That's going to seriously cost you some games when you cannot get a kick up effectively and at least try to get it through the uprights. So I, I honestly think one of the most important players they have is actually a transfer. It's Connor Culp coming from LSU to hope to shore up that kicking game. And... If he can do that, if he can get them even just three more points a game, that could go a long way toward, you know, the flip from five and seven to eight and four, for instance. So, uh, which obviously yeah. can't yeah, happen, cool. it, you know, it can't happen this season, sure. obviously, but I, I think, you know, in terms of relativity, we could see a six and four Nebraska team rather than a, a five and seven one. Yeah, I think six and four would be that would be a really good coaching job for Frost this year if he can get that team above five hundred. I think they'll be right around five and five, four and six range this year. Yeah, especially when you lose Central Michigan, South Dakota State, and you know you, we talked about that Cincinnati game in the opening segment, and I think that you know that's probably a toss up, but going two and one in non conference play would have gone a long way toward helping this team get above five hundred. So, absolutely. Well, shifting gears, let's move on to the other team that tied for sixth in the Big Ten West last year with their three and six conference record. I'm talking, of course, about the four and eight Purdue Boilermakers. They, you know, I honestly, I think they probably luck out from some of these non-conference games that come come off their schedule because even. Being at home, Memphis and Air Force were both going to be tough outs for the Boilermakers this year. And then having to go to Boston College was certainly no walk in the park either. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I, you know, it was a regression year for Jeff Brom in year three in West Lafayette. I think a lot of people were disappointed. But you can see where the regression came. They had 
a ton of injuries last year. They lost their starting quarterback. Then they obviously lost Rondell Moore, who's probably as important as he's probably more important to Purdue than any other player is in the country to their team. Honestly, like he is an electric player. So if I have one hope for Purdue this year, it's that Rondell Moore stays completely healthy and we get a full season of watching him making defenders look absolutely foolish. And when you look at Rondell Moore too, David Bell stepped up huge last season for Purdue when Moore got hurt. He had over a thousand yards and seven touchdowns. So those are really two quality receivers that are going to make life a lot easier on a new quarterback, whether that's Jack Plummer or Aiden O'Connell or even UCLA grad transfer Austin Burton taking over. Um, I think settling on a quarterback is going to be huge. I think improvement on the offensive line is going to be paramount for Purdue to improve this season as well. They averaged only 2.9 yards per carry on the ground last year. They got their two leading rushers back, but they definitely got to get better on that. And then defensively, they got to take a step forward. That's where they've really struggled. We know they can score points. We know they're going to have playmakers on the offensive side of the ball, but can they get stops when they have to? Now, bringing in Bob Diaco uh, as the new defensive coordinator, he's obviously got a track record of coaching strong defenses in the past, so they're hoping he's going to be the guy. He's got his work cut out for him, but there's a strong enough nucleus on that side of the ball to believe that the Boilermakers can take a nice step forward. There's some good players. I mean... Defensive end George Kralaptis, I think that's how you pronounce it, had seven and a half sacks as a freshman last year. So he's a guy who could really take another step forward. Uh, linebacker Derek Barnes in the middle is a really good player. And then cornerback Corey Trice is a guy Purdue really likes a lot. So I think there's a core on that defense that they could really take a step forward. Um, it's To me, it's going to come down to can they do that and will they settle on a quarterback who can actually be productive and limit turnovers. Yeah, I think those are all really important points to bring up. Two other things I'd like to bring up that I think are going to be really critical to whether Purdue can can flip the switch and get back to, you know, respectability, bull eligibility, etc. this season. The first one on offense, they need to cut back on turnovers. This was a team that lost eight fumbles and 15 interceptions last year and pretty much shot themselves in the foot with regularity. Doing, you know, cutting that down is going to be really important to to pulling out that extra win or two that they need to get above, you know, 500 or above. And then I think on defense, the critical part is getting stops on third and fourth down. This was a team that just, you know, that defense stayed on the field too long and too often too many times to be really as effective as they could be and it's those little chippy letting teams move the chains that cause them to give up 436 yards a game and nearly 31 points that that, you know it wasn't that teams had huge plays against them it was that they were able to be methodical against the boilermakers so if they cut down on those and obviously injury luck will help hugely with that you know, I, I think Purdue can really take that next leap back up in bronze, you know, third season. So, Yeah, I, I think they've got a good show. They've definitely got a lot of talent, staying healthy, and then, like I said, figuring out the quarterback situation is going to be huge for them. Definitely. Well, you know, I don't think Brom is on the hot seat, but I think a, a, a coach that people have been really kind of looking at what's going to be that next step is – the team that finished fourth last year, we're looking at Illinois, and the Illini finished 
four and five in conference play, which honestly, given where they've been in the past, is quite respectable. They went bowling last year. They finished six and seven, so under five hundred. But that's because they made it to the postseason, which is a huge leap for Illinois in itself. And, you know, they did that despite the fact that they were largely outgained on offense and um, only managed to outscore teams by an average of a half a point a game. But this is also an Illinois team that returns a hell of a lot of production from last season. And I'm really curious, can... I, I mean, I, I'm not sure that they can compete for the Big Ten West, but this is a team that's going to be a thorn in a lot of people's sides. Like, I know all too well from their game against Wisconsin last year. Yeah, I mean, you look at, Zach, four through seven in the West last year, all of those teams return a ton of production. That makes this division really fascinating because somebody's got to finish last. And it would be a disappointment for any of those teams then that last in the division with the kind of talent they brought back in the seasons that they kind of expect to have. But somebody's going to do it. And that could very well be Illinois, and that could very well cost Lovey Smith his job. I mean, I think he was coaching for his job last year. That big win over Wisconsin that really helped them get that sixth win to get bowl eligibility, I think, saved them. Like you said, though, they have a lot of talent coming back. Brandon Peters was really effective for them, the Michigan transfer at quarterback last year. He's back. They've got a very experienced and talented offensive line. They've got um, really talented receivers. They lost their top two leading rushers last from last season, so finding a guy to replace uh, Reggie Corbin and Dre Brown will be important. Um, and then replacing... Delhi Harding, their starting linebacker last season, who led the team in tackles, will be big. And, you know, if you look at a team that could regress to the mean, Illinois was plus 10 last season in turnover margin. So chances are they're not going to be plus 10 for a second year in a row. And if you take that back towards, you know, the middle and go a zero or even plus one or even minus one or two, that probably changes the outcome of two or three games and really – um, prevents them from getting another opportunity. But it would not surprise me, like I just said, if any of those teams, four through seven, finished in any kind of order, because I think they're all good enough to make a bowl game. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, looking at four through seven, all of those four teams are in the top 20 of returning production, according to Bill Connolly. So, lots of talent there. And obviously, it's Big Ten talent, so you have to think they have that chance to elevate. I think, you know, first of all, you mentioned those receivers. Joshi Matarbebe is still giving me nightmares after that Wisconsin game. And I think he's going to be the linchpin, especially with needing to, you know, rejuvenate that running game. Getting Matarbebe in there it, it is, you know, getting him the ball is going to be huge. But I think also, like you said, that defense, they were bend but don't break last year. There's a reason that they gave away more than 400 yards a game, but only 26 points a game. And as you said, it's because they led the Big Ten in forced turnovers. So, you know, and turnovers are largely, you know, as much as we like to talk about teams that have consistent turnover luck, you know, I think about Houston at the beginning of the 2010s was that kind of team that could just seem like they could always generate a turnover when they needed to. 
if Illinois can't do that this year, it will be that regression. And that's really going to, you know, be a function of, is this something that the coaching staff has found the magic formula for? Or is it going to be something that bites them in the ass? Right. I mean, the Big Ten West is fascinating. We haven't even, we talked about four teams already, and we haven't even got to the top of the division. I think, Zach, top to bottom, the West actually is better than the Big Ten East this year, which is not something that anyone would have really expected when uh, realignment and everything happened. Yeah, I mean, it's deep this year. Whether or not you have that team that just dominates, this is one of, it, it, it reminds me a lot of, like, the ACC Coastal, you know, where you just, you could honestly tab any one of these teams, and it wouldn't surprise me if they came through, you know, any of the favorites, you know, that finished high last season because they've just got that aura or any of these lower four because they got so much coming back. But one team that doesn't have a lot coming back, the only one that's outside the top 100 in returning production in the Big Ten West this year is Iowa. You know, the Hawkeyes finished third in the West last year. They were a 10-win team last season that finished 6-3 and three in conference play. But they lose a hell of a lot from last year's team. So it, it raises a lot of question marks for me whether or not they can stay in that top three this year. And it, especially with everything that's gone down in this offseason with Kirk Ferentz and, um, you know the issues around the program there. Yeah, I mean, it all really depends on if parents can rally the locker room together or if he's lost control of it. Because, I, you know, Iowa certainly has a lot to replace from last season, but I still think this is a really talented team. Um, Iowa's been one of the more consistent programs in the Big Ten for a long time. Um, obviously, replacing Nate Stanley, who is as steady as it goes, a quarterback is going to be Big. They have a lot of faith in Spencer Petras to be able to be that guy. A big thing he has working in his advantage is Iowa probably has the best offensive line in the Big Ten, if not one of the best in the entire nation. Um, Alaric Jackson at left tackle and Tyler Linderbaum at center, both potential All-Americans. They had one potential weak spot on the line, and that was at right tackle, and they fixed that by going out and getting Coy Cronk from Indiana on the transfer market. So, a dominant offensive line, new quarterback, and then um, Tyler Goodson, sophomore running back. Tyler Goodson's a guy who I think's a rising star running behind that line. I think he could be, um, you know, not obviously 1,500 yards probably with a shortened season, but the equivalent of what that would be uh, probably could still challenge for over 1,000 yards even in a 10-game season. I think he's going to be that good. Um, so, they finding production, I think, on defense and the pass rush especially will be challenging with A.J. Epineza gone. He led the team with 11 and a half sacks, so trying to replace that production. I'm probably not going to get that replaced with one guy. It's going to be a by-committee kind of thing for the Hawkeyes in the pass rush. Um, but Iowa was six in the country in SP Plus defense last season. If they, are, if they slip a little on that side of the ball, it'll really take some improvement on offense. Uh, to be able to stay right where they are. I don't think Iowa's good enough this year to really challenge for the division title, but I think they're probably still sitting around third or fourth in the division, still be an easy uh, bowl team. Yeah, you know, Iowa always seems to be that team that surprises when we least expect it. 
And last year was that 10-win season that they pulled out of the hat. I think you're right about that defense. I think, you know, guys like defensive end Chauncey Golston will need to step up their play some, but you're absolutely right. I don't think Golston alone could do it, or anybody else for that matter. It's going to have to be a committee job. But I think another thing that's really interesting, even if they don't compete for the Big Ten West, I honestly think Keith Duncan enters his season as the front runner for the Luke Rosa Award as the best kicker in the country. You know, this was a guy who set the Big Ten record last year with 29 field goals. And, you know, if he can continue being that consistent, he puts Iowa in a good, a good place, you know, to win enough games to get the bowl eligibility without sweating it too much. And... Well, they might not compete for that division title, they they won't be in the cellar by any means. So I'm with you on that. Well, now it's time to shift gears to a team that, well, I'm not the most fond of the world. But they tied for first last year. They lost the battle for Paul Bunyan's axe to finish second in our discussion here. Um, obviously talking about the row the boat Minnesota Golden Gophers finished seven and two last year in conference play, eleven and two overall after their impressive bowl victory. So, you know, I, I think this is a team that has, you know, they're kind of a Jekyll and Hyde team. This is a team that brings back a hell of a lot of offensive production with guys like Rashad Bateman and Tanner Morgan, uh, running backs like Muhammad Ibrahim. They, but there's a lot of question marks on that defense. Yeah, I mean, I think we know pretty right away that this offense is going to be explosive. Obviously, they lost Rodney Smith, who had over 1,000 rushing yards. They lost Tyler Johnson, who is their leading receiver. But they bring back Tanner Morgan, who was a revelation last season, really took that next step for Minnesota and helped them elevate to one of the better teams in the Big Ten. Uh, Rashad Bateman comes back with, he had 1,200 yards, 11 touchdowns, averaged over 20 yards per catch. They've got all five of their starters back on the line. And you mentioned Muhammad Ibrahim, who had 604 yards and seven touchdowns as the number two back last season. So that should be a seamless transition in the backfield. This offense is going to put up a lot of points. The question is going to be whether this defense can come anywhere close to their 26th finish in SB Plus last season. Because they lose their top three leading tacklers, their leader in sacks, and their leader in receptions. So there's a lot of talent to replace. You don't just find a guy um, like Antoine Winfield Jr. on the street. That was a program-changing generational talent for the Golden Gophers. He's going to be one of their best players in program history, a guy that they talk about for the next 100 years in that program. Um, but obviously they lose him. They lose linebacker Kamal Martin linebacker Thomas Barber, and Carter Coughlin, who led the team in sacks. So there's a lot to replace. There's a lot to like about Minnesota. Again, I think um, P.J. Fleck has this program moving in the right direction. I think they're going to be a contender um, in the Big Ten West every season with him there. But if they can, and if they can find a few new guys to step up on the defensive side of the ball, if they can get more production from guys like Jordan Howden and Benjamin St. Juice on uh, the defensive backfield. They combined for 16 passes defended between them last year, so that's going to be a nice start. 
But if they can find some stuff in the front seven, I think Minnesota's got a real shot at winning the Big Ten West because they're going to be so good, I think, offensively. Yeah, that offense is scary, even with what they did lose. It's something that I personally am am a bit concerned about as a Badgers fan. Full disclosure there, everybody. I'll own up to it. Not a huge Minnesota fan, at least from a fanatic standpoint. From an, a, a journalist standpoint, Minnesota's got it going on. And uh, I, I think you're right. The big concern is that defense. Winfield obviously was ridiculous. And this was a team that allowed only 22.5 points a game last year. They were ranked in the top 25 nationally, giving only 307 points a game. But I think the other thing that hurts Minnesota here, at least in terms of that you know, college football playoff discussion, is they lost three winnable non-conference games. Especially those games against Florida Atlantic and BYU that while they weren't necessarily going to set the world on fire, could have been really respectable wins. And I think that could really hurt in the long run, especially with how we saw Minnesota treated by the college football playoff committee last year. Even as they were undefeated, they were consistently ranked 10 spots lower than other undefeated teams. And they're not going to get the benefit of the doubt especially with a tougher conference-only schedule on their plate. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think I think that bowl win over Auburn really opened some eyes across the country because I think most people expected Auburn to win that game relatively easily. So Minnesota coming out and taking it to the Tigers, I think, was huge for their standing nationally. Definitely. But of course they Plus, all... Plus, I greatly enjoyed it. So. Oh, yeah, Definitely. Obviously, you did, Mr. Tide. Uh, But, you know, and as an impartial observer for that game, I have to say I enjoyed it as well. Even if I don't necessarily love the Gophers when they're playing, the team we'll be talking about next. The team that finished tied with them in the Big Ten West, but managed to win the head-to-head. Talking, of course, about the Wisconsin Badgers, finished 10-4 and overall with an overall worse record than Minnesota, but with the division in their hands. We talked about that lost game against Notre Dame. We talked about losing the game against App State as well. So they have a couple of games that could have bolstered their, you know, strength of schedule there, I think. Even then, this is a team that comes into the season ranked in the top 10 in preseason SP Plus at number 9. And that's with having lost a guy like Jonathan Taylor at running back. Obviously, Wisconsin seems to churn out tailbacks like, you know, few schools can. And a lot of that comes down to an offensive line that includes guys like Cole Van Landen. So, I'm wondering, you know, for a team that scored 34 points a game, averaged 433 yards a game... We know that their defense will probably be good, but do you think that this offense can can be where they were last year? Yeah, the they're kind of the opposite of Minnesota in that you feel good about Wisconsin's defense, and there's a lot of question marks about their offense because they return a ton of talent defensively. They were one of the better defenses in college football last season, and that shouldn't change this year. Anything, they'll probably get even better on that side of the ball. 
kind of depending on replacing Zach Bond and Chris Orr, who combined for 24 sacks. That's tough production to, to lose, but otherwise, you know, there's obviously plenty of talent there. Uh, losing Jonathan Taylor is huge. Obviously, Wisconsin's a running back factory, but this was probably the best one they've had. Um, 5,700 yards in three seasons. He had back-to-back 2,000-yard seasons. You don't hear about stuff like that in college football, uh, particularly anymore. I think also losing Quintess Cephas at wide receiver is a huge loss. He had over 900 yards and seven touchdowns. Uh, so losing him is big. I worry they've obviously got some new faces on the offensive line, but worrying about the Badgers up front feels like a foolish exercise because they home grow offensive linemen like crazy there, and they'll be fine up front. Um, and I'm sure Nakia Watson will be able to give them a good production in the backfield, but he's not going to be Jonathan Taylor 2.0. So they're going to take a little bit of a step back, I think, on offense this year. It'll be interesting to me whether Jack Cohn can take the next step for them or if this is the year that Graham Mertz overtakes him for the starting gig. If he struggles and Mertz is sitting there, it wouldn't surprise me if they handed the the ball to Mertz at some point because he's got a ton of talent. Um, but, yeah, the Wisconsin's going to be really good defensively. It all kind of depends on how everything comes together with the skilled positions on offense, if the Badgers can repeat as West champions and potentially even take that next step and win the whole Big Ten. Yeah, I'm with you there. Those big question marks are at in the backfield. You know, do they go with Cone or do they go with Mertz? And then, you know, in terms of running back, I really like Nakia Watson. Obviously, I also like Garrett Groshek, who was, you know, sort of the the thunder to Jonathan Taylor's lightning last year. But I'm really curious, how soon do they turn to a guy like uh, new incoming freshman Jalen Berger? Because he's a huge recruit to land, and I think that he could easily step up quickly and take over the, the RB1 slot on the depth chart. And I think if he does, we could easily see that that quick boom you know it, it's not re you know rebuilding it's just retooling in this in this game it, it, for the badgers in that regard so i'm high on the badgers this year probably surprises absolutely nobody but do you think that they'll finish at the top of the division john i have to ask you that how do you think that this division shakes out yeah, I think it's kind of a coin flip between Minnesota and Wisconsin. I think they're the two best teams in the division this year. Uh, Wisconsin getting their game at home against Minnesota, I think, is what swings the division in Wisconsin's favor. So I've got the Badgers up front with Miss Minnesota right behind them. The winner of that game probably takes the Big Ten West, the same as it was last season. Um, I've got Iowa slotting in at third. And I've got Northwestern jumping up to fourth. I really think the Wildcats are going to have a bounce back year. I slotted Purdue fifth, Nebraska sixth, and Illinois seventh. But I think really three through seven in any kind of order wouldn't surprise me. I think Minnesota and Wisconsin are the top two teams in the West. But any of those other teams could finish third, in my opinion. I think this is a really top to bottom one of the best divisions in college football in 2020. And any of these teams um, could go 500 or better and make a bowl game. Yeah, I'm, I, I totally agree with you there that we have a really deep division. As a fan, I have a ton of hope for Wisconsin this year. I think they do finish top of the division again, and I think they do it outright with Minnesota finishing in second. I've got Iowa and Nebraska tied for third this year. I 
I, I don't know why necessarily, but just kind of looking at the way their schedules shake out respectively. Obviously, it depends on who gets added for a 10th game. If, you know, the Big Ten does decide to play 10 games this year, rather than just sticking with the conference schedules that they have. But, you know, I think that they're probably, you know, 3A and 3B there. I've got Northwestern 5th, which could easily fold up into that tie for 3rd. Uh, Purdue 6th, and I'm with you on Illinois. I, You know, as much as I love what Lovey Smith is doing there, or hate what Lovey Smith's doing there when he plays the Badgers, uh, I, you know, I think they could be better and still finish with a worse record. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It's a tough division. I mean, there's no easy games for any of those teams when they're playing divisional opponents. It's a, it's a tough slog every every week. Yeah, it certainly is. And it, as good as the Big Ten East is getting, I, I think you're absolutely right that this is probably the more complete division. But on that note, let's take our final break here, everybody, before we come back and talk about the Big Ten East and how things might shake out in the conference overall and whether any of these teams can make the college football playoff. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back for our final segment of this week's Big Ten preview on the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We just finished talking about the Big Ten West, and now it's time to shift our attention to the Big Ten East. We're, as I said in the last segment, going in opposite order of how teams finished in the conference last year. So, first on the plate, no surprise to anybody, is the winless in conference Rutgers Scarlet Knights who finished dead last in the East with a 2-10 overall record. Do you think that Greg Schiano 2.0 is going to work out at Rutgers, John? You know, I really don't know. I think it's as good of a hire as Rutgers could have conceivably gotten. Um, this is certainly the truest of the true year zeros for a coach, uh, because obviously there's a huge hill for Schiano to climb. Uh, for Rutgers to be competitive again. And, you know, it's a whole different circumstance that he comes into now. He's no longer in the Big East. They're in the Big Ten, and they're in a really tough division in the Big Ten when everything's clicking for every other team. It's really tough. So I don't know. It's going to be patience is the word, I think, for Rutgers fans, which is something they should be used to, obviously, in Piscataway. Um, It's going to take a lot of time before Rutgers is competitive again. You could probably call this year negative three even for Greg Schiano coming into Rutgers. It's going to take that much time. I mean, the big question for them this year, obviously Schiano's a defensive coach. you got to think his pedigree on that side of the ball is going to instantly improve that defense. But can Rutgers score any points? They averaged 5.7 points per game in Big Ten play last year. That's obviously not going to get it done. That's how you go winless in conference play right there. So, really, it comes down to who starts at quarterback. They've got to get more production from that position. They were hoping Texas Tech transfer McLean Carter would be that guy for them last year. He got hurt, and they had to go back to Archer Sitkowski, who was disastrous as a freshman. He wasn't much better as a sophomore. Johnny Langan wasn't much better either last season for them. Is it going to be one of those guys, or could Nebraska transfer Noah Verdell be the guy, or Vidral come in and be the guy who takes over that starting job? They're really young um, on the offensive line as well. There's just not a lot of talent in the cupboard. 
I think they've got some interesting skill pieces. I think Isaiah Pacheco is a really talented running back, so if the offensive line can come together, he can be the bell cow for Keanu's offense. Um, and then can Rutgers get any pressure on the quarterback on the other side of the ball? They had 18 sacks as a team last year. Um, it's it's going to take time. I don't see any way Rutgers runs out of the cellar in 2020. I, I agree with you. This was the team that ranked last in the Big Ten, not just in sacks, but also in total tackles for loss. Ranked in the bottom ten in the country in scoring offense and scoring defense. But, you know, you also mentioned this is a team that has a lot returning back. They're 15th in the country in returning production. And, you know, they do have some parts at work. I look at that linebacking core, that that core of linebackers with Olakuni Fadakasi, Tyreek Maddox-Williams, Tyshawn Fogg. There's some talent there, you know? So I think they could vault up from, you know, allowing 36 points a game to allowing 30 points a game, which sounds very Rutgers. But it's a, it, they're a long distance removed from that 1869 shared national championship with Princeton. We'll just put it that way. I don't think they're getting back to those heights any soon, you know, anytime soon. I don't think they're getting back to a bowl game anytime soon. So I love what you said about year negative three. That sounds about right. I also love that you brought up this idea that they're playing in completely different circumstances than Shiano had last time he was there. It reminds me a lot about of Randy Edsel coming back for his second act at UConn. You know, when he was there last time in the Big East, you had power conference status without power conference competition necessarily. And I think that really helped in a lot of ways to, to you know, bolster their credentials among the coaching fraternity. You can't hide in the Big Ten, though. You know, Edsel might be able to hide in independence. Graciano can't hide in the Big Ten East. So, probably a cellar dweller again. Hopefully they get above two wins, but with a, with a Big Ten-only schedule and losing teams like Temple and Monmouth from the FCS, they're probably not going to get there. Another team I'm skeptical about, John, is the team that finished sixth last year. Talking, of course, about the Maryland Terrapins, who were one and eight overall in conference play, three and or one and eight in conference play, three and nine overall. Their only conference win, of course, against Rutgers. This is a team that, obviously, over the past couple of years, has been snake bitten by injury issues. They don't have Texas on the schedule this year, though, so they m- might not have as you know as good a time as we hoped, but they've got somebody from your neck of the woods that could turn things for them in Talia Tagovailoa. So, I, you know, I'm wondering, does, does Tagovailoa start, or do we see Josh Jackson back there, or do we see incoming freshman Lance Lujan as well taking over at quarterback? I think that's pro- yeah. probably the biggest question swirling around this program. Yeah, I mean, Josh Jackson didn't have a very good year last year. only completed 47% of his passes. Um, A far step down from the guy we saw early in his career at Virginia Tech that seemed like he had just a ton of potential. 
you know, if Tonga Vailoa gets a, um, the waiver from the NCAA to be able to play this year, I think that's a very interesting quarterback competition because he's got – we saw what another Tonga Vailoa did in Mike Loxley's system when he was the offensive coordinator in Alabama. Obviously, comparing Talia to Tua isn't really fair to Talia because Tua was a generational talent at the position. But this is the kind of offense that Talia wants to play in. He wants to play in the – the RPO kind of offense, and that's exactly what Loxley wants to do. So I think, um, you know, can they get more consistent on, on offense is the question. And their three wins last year, they scored 62% of their total points for the season in those three wins. I mean, they started out, they hammered Syracuse in the season over like Maryland was going to be a legitimate team in the Big Ten. And then we found out Syracuse wasn't very good either. And then, you know, Maryland fell off a cliff after that. So, obviously, getting more consistent on offense is big, but they've got to get better defensively. They gave up almost 42 points per game in Big Ten games last year. Um, they really struggled to affect the quarterback. They had one really um, capable pass rusher last year, Keandre Jones, and he's gone. His seven sacks have to be replaced. They only had 21 total as a team. I think there's talent on offense uh, despite losing both Javon Leak and Anthony McFarland in the backfield, I think Kayon Fleet Davis is a talented running back. I think recruiting is going pretty well for Loxley, too. Certainly, you could consider this really year one, last year being year zero for Loxley at Maryland. Getting Rakeem Jarrett, the five-star freshman receiver, to commit to Maryland was a huge recruiting coup for Loxley, a guy that was you know, seemingly headed to LSU, spurning the Tigers on signing day and signing with hometown Maryland. That's a huge recruiting win. If he can be the guy recruiting experts think he can be, that's a huge uh, boost for Maryland's offense this year and whoever's playing quarterback. So um, there's talent for Maryland, but I still don't see too big of an improvement for the Terps this year. It would be a great coaching job if they were anywhere close to five. Yeah, you know, this is a team that defensively sucked last season. They gave up 450 yards, they gave up five touchdowns a game, and they lost half of their production. So they're hoping that this is addition by subtraction, that they got rid of the bad and kept the good. Obviously, it's a mixed bag whenever we're talking about college football in that regard. But the defense has to get better. You need guys like Iende Ely to, to play better. You need guys like Nick Cross on the back end to, to be able to shut down things when the ball is getting passed into the backfield. But, you know, I, I think it all starts with Maryland's offense in the red zone. This is a team that when they got down into the red zone, failed to score more than one-third of the time. They ranked second to last in the FBS, 129 out of 130 in red zone scoring. And I think if you're going to get into that position, you have to get something out of it. So that's really going to be the critical part for this Terps team this year is can they score when they get into position to score? And if they can do that, they have that opportunity to, to take a bit of a jump. Obviously, in a division like this, it's going to be really tough to get all the way to the top. But, you know, we're not looking at Ralph Friedgen era Maryland by any means, but I think that this is a team that could at least be competitive in these games if they're able to get something when they actually put 
a good drive together. Yeah, I mean, the goal, I think, for Loxley is for Maryland not to get blown out every week in Big Ten play. If they can do that and be more competitive this season, even if the wins don't come, that's a big step in the right direction. Exactly. And, you know, I think another team that's really looking to be at least competitive in Big Ten play this year, not going to make our our site editor, Connor Muldoni, absolutely happy, but I think Michigan State needs to at least be competitive. You know, they were fifth in the East last year, four and five in conference play. They went bowling. They finished seven and six overall, but I don't think that that's a kind of season that's going to make a guy like Connor happy. And, you know, they lose a lot of talent. Only their state rival Michigan loses more production than this Spartans team. So, you know, they lost their top three wide receivers. They lost starting quarterback Brian Lewerke. They lose a, a, a hell of a lot from their defense. And they lost their coach after Mark Tantonio suddenly retired in the offseason that we talked about back in February. So Mel Tucker's got a hell of a tough task ahead of him in East Lansing this year with a lot of inexperience on both sides of the ball. Do you think he can work any magic there this year, John? I think it's really tough, particularly with losing all the practice time we've lost. Because like you said, they're 117th in the country in returning production. They have a new head coach that kind of got there late in the process to begin with. And now you lose all the practice time. So they're having to do a lot of mental reps and stuff like that. And that's not really conducive to much improvement. Things had really started going downhill for this program under D'Antonio. Um, it's probably... Obviously, he was a great coach for Michigan State for a long time. He took them to the heights they haven't seen in a long time. But I think it was the right time for a new coach to come in. I think Mel Tucker is a good hire for the Spartans. It just It's going to take time for them to kind of rebuild because I don't think the cupboard was as full as you would think coming into East Lansing after a coach like D'Antonio. So, to me, Michigan State struggled with a lot of the same things when we talked about Stanford in the Pac-12 preview because when Michigan State was really good, over the last decade, it was because they were able to impose their will running the football. And that's something they haven't been able to do the last few seasons. They only averaged three and a half yards per carry last year. That's got to get better. I think Elijah Collins, he had 988 yards last season on the ground, but he only averaged 4.4 yards per carry. I mean, if he had more holes opening up in front of him, he would have easily been a 1,000-yard rusher last season for the Spartans. So He's going to be the guy on offense this year as they kind of transition to a new quarterback, whether that's Rocky Lombardi or Peyton Thorne or Theo Day, whoever comes out on top of that. Willie needs to invigorate a passing offense that had only seven total plays over the last two seasons that went for 40-plus yards. So they're getting no big plays from their passing game. They're not able to move the ball effectively in chunks on the ground either. So this offense has had a lot of issues. They were really good defensively last season. Tucker is a defensive coach, so even with the loss of guys like Kenny Wellex, Tyreek Thompson, Joe Batchy on that defense, they're probably still going to be okay defensively. There's still some talent with Antoine Simmons, Xavier Henderson, Jacob Panaziak on defense. There's enough guys on that side of the ball, and Tucker's a good enough defensive coach that Michigan State's still going to be competitive defensively. But I think it's going to take some more time to build up this offense to really find some skill position players who can really make things happen. Because they don't have any any wide receivers on the roster this season who had more um, 
who had more than 300 yards receiving last year. They lost their top three guys, like you said. So they've got no known production from their receiving core. And that's really going to be a challenge for a new quarterback to kind of develop a rapport with receivers who, you know, haven't really done much. I think what's big is getting Jaden Reed, the transfer from Western Michigan, who sat last season, who's eligible to play this year, because he had almost 800 yards and eight touchdowns as a freshman. If he can replicate that kind of production, that's going to be huge for the Spartans' offense. Yeah, if he can play opposite a guy like Trey Mosley, and both of them can, you know, build that good rapport early with Lombardi or whoever comes out on top of the quarterback competition, could go a long way toward elevating even, you know, two, three points a game, I, I, I think is enough to get Michigan State back at least to respectability. You know, and it's not like they weren't respectable last season going to a bowl game and finishing 7-6, and six, but that's not the heights that we expected from D'Antonio teams. And ultimately, it, I, they might be a year or two off, I think, just where they're at and with, you know, um, that coaching change happening there with Mel Tucker coming in for D'Antonio. So... Shifting gears, talking about a team that feels like, you know, rather than backsliding, felt like it was on the rise last year. Let's talk about Indiana now, who finished fourth in the East at five and four and eight and five overall. You know, this was a team that was able, as you said, you know, when we talked earlier about Peyton Ramsey um, at Northwestern, they were able to weather the injury to Michael Penix at quarterback, and they were able to win eight games for the first time since 1993. And no team returns more talent in the Big Ten East than Indiana. So is this their opportunity to, you know, win their first bowl game since 1991 even? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to overstate how good of a job Tom Allen has done for the leaders in Bloomington. Um, my big concern is keeping Michael Penix healthy this year because there's not a Peyton Ramsey sitting behind him. There's not that established veteran who has starter experience that's sitting there ready to take the reins if Penix gets hurt. So Allen kind of figuring out how to use all of Penix's skills with his ability as a dual threat kind of quarterback, but also keeping him safe and healthy as much as possible. Because if he goes down, it's going to be a real challenge for Indiana to, to be the team I think they can be. I don't think the Hoosiers are going to be a legitimate contender in the Big Ten, but I think they can jump up from fourth and compete to jump ahead of Michigan for third this year. I, they certainly have a lot of talent, particularly if Penix is healthy. They bring back Stevie Scott, who had 845 yards and 10 touchdowns rushing. Watt Fillier is one of the better receivers in the conference. He had over 1,000 yards last year. Peyton Hendershot's a really talented tight end. Um, they have... All three of their leading receivers back from last year. They've got a lot of production back on the defensive side of the ball, led by Micah McFadden, who led the team in tackles at linebacker last year. He's a potential All-American for the Hoosiers. So, you know, this is a team that certainly feels like they're on the upswing. And if Pinnock stays healthy, I, I really feel good about how good Indiana can be in 2020. I, I agree with you. I really like where Allen has the Hoosiers going. 
obviously losing non-conference games against Western Kentucky, Ball State, and UConn means that they probably won't get to nine wins for the first time since the 1960s. But this is a team that is definitely on the upswing. And with that much returning talent back, I mean, they've got 82% of their defensive productivity back from a team that gave up only 24.4 points a game. This is a good defense. And, you know, you look at some, you know, they were only less than two points. They gave away less than two points more than Michigan State last year, who we traditionally think of as an elite defense. But they also scored a you know, 10 points more than the the Spartans did. And I think as long as they can keep the offense humming in that way, and as you said, obviously that depends so much on Penix staying healthy. But if that can happen, I really do like where Indiana is going this year. And as you said, they could very well leapfrog a Michigan team that finished third in the East last year. So let's turn our attention to Jim Harbaugh and crew. Wolverines went 6-3 and three in conference play. They missed their chance to get to 10 wins in the bowl game, but they finished 9-4 and four overall. And, you know, this is a team, though, that loses more productivity than any other team in the Big Ten. They're 125th out of 130 FBS teams in returning production. And so I really wonder, is this the year that Michigan takes that step back and Harbaugh goes even further onto a hot seat? Yeah, I mean, you got to wonder how much more Michigan fans are going to kind of tolerate the things with Harbaugh because he came to Michigan not to have them finishing third in the division and competing for a 10th win in the Capital One Bowl, or the Citrus Bowl now. Um, They brought Harbaugh to Michigan with expectations that Michigan would be right there next to Ohio State every year for Big Ten titles and competing for national championships. And they haven't really come all that close to doing that yet under Harbaugh. Um, And this definitely feels like the team most likely to regress in this division because of all they have to place obviously a lot of Michigan fans are probably happy to move on from Shea Patterson who never really lived up to the hype he came with from Ole Miss but you know with a shortened offseason you're breaking in a new quarterback with either uh, Dylan McCaffrey or Joe Milton taking the job you've got four new starters on the offensive line you lose Donovan Peoples-Jones a really talented receiver I think they're going to be fine there I think Ronnie Bell and Nico Collins will really uh, be a very nice tandem for them. And then they've got, you know, Zach Charbonnet and Hassan Haskins in the backfield that's going to help. But they've got to figure out the offensive line. They've got to get production with the quarterback. I'm not really worried about the defense, Zach, even losing as much talent as they did. Because it's just hard for me, just like it's hard for me to be worried about Wisconsin's offensive line, it's hard for me to be worried about Michigan's defense while Don Brown is there. I think he's got the pedigree to get that defense up to speed quickly. But there's a lot they have to replace. I mean, losing your top two tacklers and Khalid Hudson and Jordan Glasgow, lead, losing Josh Uche, who led the team in sacks, and losing Levert Hill on the defensive backfield, those are really tough guys to replace. But Harbaugh's recruited well enough that those guys should come in. It's really going to depend on whether he can finally get that offense humming the way it needs to. But I, I'm lower on Michigan this year than I have been in a while. I don't think they completely 
fall off the map or anything, but I do think they take a step back, and I do think there will be quite a bit of pressure on Harbaugh heading into 2021. I'm with you there. You know, I look at this Michigan team, and you look at, for instance, last season. This was a team that beat every team that they were supposed to beat. But this is a team that in no way could spring the upset against a team that they weren't supposed to beat. You know, they beat... They beat Iowa. They, you know, they beat Notre Dame, which was probably the closest thing they had to an upset last year. But you look at those losses. You know, they lost by 21 at Wisconsin. They lost by 7 points at at Penn State, which honestly was probably closer than it should have been. They lost by... Oh, God, it was 29 points at, you know, at home against Ohio State. And then, you know, you look at the Citrus Bowl and they get blown out by 19 again by Alabama. Those are all games where they weren't favored necessarily. But at the same time, you've got to win at least one of those. You have to, you have to start pulling upsets if you're Harbaugh. Because Michigan doesn't get back to where they were. They don't get back to where Michigan expects itself to be among the blue bloods of college football unless they can start winning those games against a team like Ohio State, against Alabama, against Penn State, even against a Wisconsin. So I'm with you. I'm really curious as to whether Michigan can take that next step this year, and I don't think this is a year with as little as they have coming back, which leads you to to wonder is heart you know as great as Harbaugh did at Stanford that program didn't really take off until David Shaw took over as head coach so you know I I have to wonder you know his best years of coaching were probably with the San Francisco 49ers how soon do we see Harbaugh leaping toward an NFL job again and the question also becomes, will there be another NFL job for him, given what's happened at Michigan? Yeah, I mean, you got to expect that, that whoever's coaching Michigan has to be able to beat Ohio State at least every half decade, and that he hasn't been able to do that. You know, we talked about the beginning of last season. If it wasn't going to happen last year with Ohio State in the transition season losing you know, Urban Meyer and going to Ryan Day, when was it ever going to happen for Michigan to beat Ohio State? It certainly doesn't look like they're anywhere close to Ohio State's level in 2020. Exactly. You know, you look at a guy like Lloyd Carr, you know, who was pretty much persona non grata in Ann Arbor by the end of his time there. He went 6-7 and seven against Ohio State. He essentially had a 500 record against them if you give him a you know if you give him one less or one more year he probably finishes with a 500 record against the Buckeyes Harbaugh sure as hell ain't there and that's not gonna cut it long term for the Wolverines faithful so I think this is that kind of season that really makes you wonder about Michigan and whether long term you know they have that opportunity, but, you know, whether we see Rich Rodriguez, whether we saw what Brady Hoke did there, whether we see what Harbaugh is doing there, they're at that point where they feel like a consistent 8-9 win team. This feels a lot like 
Nebraska. You know, you, you talked about Nebraska in the last segment probably not getting to the glory days of the 90s. Face it, Michigan fans, it's going to be a hard sell to finally get back to the point-a-minute fielding those teams. And if you're looking at anything you compare Michigan to in terms of their past glories, you can't get better than that. And that's what Michigan fans think that they should be every year. But you're not going to be that every year. You're not going to be that. You could have the best coach in the. You you could go get Nick Saban right now, and he's not going to pull that off in Ann Arbor. It's just the realities of where recruiting is happening these days. Yeah, I mean, I I think that uh, certainly Harbaugh's burdened with high expectations at Michigan, maybe too high of expectations. But I think they've actually been a little more lenient with Harbaugh than I would have expected with as quickly as they've run off other coaches. Obviously he hasn't, he's had some success there. We're not talking about losing five or six games a year, but at this point, as long as he's been there, I think you would have in the very least expected a win over Ohio state and a big 10 title at this point. Yeah. Or at least a division title at this point. They haven't even gotten that. Yeah. I mean, Bo Pelini did better at, at Nebraska than Jim Harbaugh has done at Michigan right now. And Polini got run out of Lincoln. And I think the only thing that's really holding up Harbaugh still is the glory of his time as a quarterback in Maize and Blue. He's a Michigan man, so they're going to hold on to him as long as they can. But ultimately, that's not going to save anybody if you can't win or not. Yeah, I agree. Well, for the... You know, second to last team we have to look at now. Sitting here close to home, just about a mile and a half down the road is Beaver Stadium from me. Penn State finished second in the Big Ten East last year at seven and two overall, or seven and two in conference play and eleven and two overall. And you know, this was a team that outscored opponents by nearly twenty points a game last year. And while they don't bring back nearly as much talent as a lot of teams in the Big Ten do, they're still in the top 50 overall in returning talent. So I think that, you know, Penn State has more returning production than at least their closest rivals in the East in terms of Ohio State and Michigan. Um, So I'm wondering, is this the year that they can finally pip Ohio State? I liked this Penn State team quite a bit. I really liked the Nittany Lions. I think it's it's weird to think of um, James Franklin as underrated, but it really feels like he flies under the radar when people put their list of best coaches out there. But Penn State has consistently been really good under Franklin. They've won 11 games in three of the last four seasons. So the next step would be getting into the college football playoff. That's really all that Franklin's missing on his resume at Penn State at this point. And I think it comes down a lot to whether rising junior quarterback Sean Clifford can take the next step in his maturation. He was pretty good last season. He threw for 2,600 yards, ran for 400 more, had 28 total touchdowns, and only threw seven interceptions. They've got perhaps the best running back duo in college football with Journey Brown and Noah Kane. From a talent standpoint, it doesn't get a whole lot better than that. Pat Fryer moves one of the better tight ends in the country. Jahan Dotson's a good 
receiver. They've got a good offensive line. And on defense, Michael Parsons is one of my favorite players in my country. He might be the best defensive player in all of college football. He's a guy that a defensive player's got um, the love they deserve would be a legitimate Heisman candidate in my mind. He's the best linebacker in college football. Obviously, losing Yatur Gross-Matos on defense is huge. But I really like Shaka Tony kind of stepping into that role. He had six and a half sacks last year. I think he'll get even better in 2020. Um, they've got a really good defensive backfield as well. So if they can find a pass rusher to kind of emerge alongside Tony to help mitigate the loss of Gross Matos, then I think, you know, a guy like sophomore Jason Owa or sophomore Adisa Isaac are names to watch on that side of the ball. So I like Penn State a lot. I like the fact that they get Ohio State at home even though home field advantage isn't that big of a deal in 2020 likely. But I think that could be what tips the scales in their favor in the Big Ten East. Yeah, obviously, I have to take, you have to take this with a grain of salt. I'm a current Penn State student. And while my heart will always remain with Oregon as my alma mater and Wyoming and Wisconsin as those teams I grew up with, I, you know, being in the state college community means that you start to to understand what's happening here. And, you know, this is a team that I think is going to show little drop-off on defense, as you said. They finished 10th in defensive SP Plus last year. And with Parsons back, with Tony, I think about a guy also like Safety Lamont Wade on the back end. He's a huge, you know, producer as well. And, you know, even with 37% of their productivity leaving from the defense this year, I think this is a team that that should show little drop-off there. The biggest question mark for me isn't that backfield, because you have Journey Brown, you have Noah Kane, you have Devin Ford, you have one of the deepest backfields in the country. But can Sean Clifford improve his completion rate by three or four points even? If he, you know, he was sub 60% completion rate last year. And if this is a guy who can complete even 63% of his passes, 64% of his passes, that translates to another dozen, dozen and a half completions a game. And that could go a long way toward determining whether or not Penn State is able to beat Ohio State. But I'm high on this team. This was a team that beat beat opponents by 20 points a game last year. And, you know, they lose Kent State. They lose Virginia Tech. But, you know, they lose San Jose State. But no matter who they add for their possible 10th Big Ten game, whether it's a team like Wisconsin or Minnesota or somebody like Purdue or even Illinois, I think this is a team that has a real chance in those sorts of games. So... I really like where the Nittany Lions are headed this season. And as you mentioned, James Franklin is a a master. This is a guy who coached Vanderbilt to -to back-to-back nine-win seasons. This is a damn good head coach. And, I, you know, we talked about Michigan last year in terms of it being their year if they were really going to push Ohio State for the Big Ten title. I think this is the year if any, that Penn State pushes for the Big Ten title. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. We don't know, It's not talked about enough, those back-to-back nine-win seasons. The further we get away from that happening at Vanderbilt. But, man, that's as impressive of a feat as any coach has on their resume. 
It's absurd. It really is absurd. I mean, you think about nine wins at Vanderbilt, that's essentially getting 13 wins at Ohio State. And that's practically three seasons worth of wins in one season for Vanderbilt. Exactly. And Derek Mason can attest to that. <laughs> but let's shift gears to the team that actually finished at the top of the Big Ten East last year. We're obviously talking about the Ohio State Buckeyes, who, you know, moved on from the Urban Meyer era in absolute class. Ryan Day has vaulted this team right up to first. They finished perfect in conference play. They went 13-1 and overall with their only loss that tight game against Clemson in the college football playoff semifinals that Buckeye fans, frankly, still think they got screwed out of. They might have a case, they might not. I'm not going to weigh in on that part of it. But this is a team that's second in preseason SP+, despite the fact that they're 93rd overall in returning production. So, obviously, this is a team that doesn't rebuild. This is a team that retools. But I'm curious, you know, they have Justin Fields. They lost Chase Young. So the offense is great. The defense has some question marks. How does losing the Oregon game off their schedule affect the Buckeyes if they, you know, if they were to lose at some point in in the regular season, but win the conference title while not getting to play a team like Oregon serve as a double-edged sword for them in the college football playoff race? You know, I think Ohio State's got the pedigree and they're starting high enough that they will probably be okay even without it. Um, I, I'm i still sore about that Ohio State-Clemson game, too, not because of any referee mistakes, but because Ohio State really dropped the ball in that game. They should have beaten Clemson, and it robbed us of what would have been as good of a national championship game as we probably had between LSU and Ohio State. We talked about it all year. Those were the two best teams in college football last year. I hated not getting to see them play each other. I think there's just a lot of eggs in Justin Fields' basket this year, and that's what a little makes me a little concerned for Ohio State. They have a ton of talent on offense. We know this is going to be one of the best offenses in college football. Justin Fields is probably the Heisman co-favorite with Trevor Lawrence. They've got talent in the backfield even after losing J.K. Dobbins with Master Teague and, Ohio, and Oklahoma transfer Trey Sermon coming in. Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson are extremely talented receivers. They're going to be really good offensively. Defensively is where I think it really, it's going to really decide the year because losing Chase Young is huge. He had 16 and a half sacks last year and so many more quarterback hurries, and he just affected the game. You had to game plan against Chase Young every single week. There's not going to be a guy that's able to just have that production. It's going to be a by committee kind of approach to the pass rush. They also lose Malik Harrison in the middle of the defense. They lose Jeff Okuda, who was probably the nation's best cornerback a year ago. There's still talent, obviously. Tough Borland was their fourth-leading tackler. He's got to take that leadership role departed by Harris. And then Sean Wade's a potential first-round pick at cornerback next season, and he's got to step in and be that Okuda shutdown corner that they needed. But I just worry that if something happens to Fields, what does Ohio State have behind him? Uh, offensively, and then I think there's just so many question marks. Because what, you know, we look at how good they were on offense, but this is one of the best defenses in the country a year ago. They were second in XP plus in that metric last season defensively, and I think there's no way they stay at that mark. They're going to slip a little bit defensively, and I think that could be 
what ends up swinging the division in Penn State's favor. I think it's a toss-up. I really think those are the two best teams, even in the Big Ten, in my opinion, this season. And really, I think it's going to come down to that game in Happy Valley and who comes out on top. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you there. I, I see those as the two best teams in the division as well. The, you know, you mentioned that defense, but one thing that hangs me up with Ohio State as well, as good as that offense was scoring 47 points a game, racking up 530 yards a game, this was a team that lost 13 fumbles last year. They ranked 122nd in the country. For a team where you go down their statistics, that's an anomaly. And, you know, we talked about turnovers as something that, is a luck thing and I think honestly it's a luck thing more on defense than it is on offense it's laxity on offense and overconfidence that leads you to hold the ball a little less tightly it leads you to you know take a few more chances to reach out a little harder for extra yardage because you think you'll always be able to get it and I think Ohio State needs to be very careful about that because if if they lose 13 fumbles again next year it might not always turn the way that they hope. I don't know that they necessarily finish 9 and 0 next year or 10 and 0 next year if that sort of thing happens. And that could be the difference between college football playoff and honestly probably another New Year's 6 bowl given that they're Ohio State. But that would still be a disappointment for fans in Columbus. Yeah, and I, I think with the defense potentially taking slipping up a bit, you lose your margin for error. So any of those those fumbles become that much more key if you lose the ball on offense like that. And honestly, reminds me. This honestly reminds me a lot of Alabama last season. They're putting a lot of pressure on one guy, like Alabama did with Tua Tagovailoa. Ohio State's doing the same thing with Justin Fields. They've got question marks on defense. It wouldn't surprise me if they slipped up once or twice in the regular season. Certainly. Well, looking at that, since we've talked about Ohio State and Penn State most recently as probably the top two teams in this division, how do you think it shakes out, John? I actually do think Penn State takes the division this year. I like the Nittany Lions to win the Big Ten East. I got Ohio State coming in second. And I slotted Indiana sliding into third. I think the Hoosiers... I really like the Hoosiers this year, and I think they're going to jump ahead of Michigan. I've got Michigan fourth, Michigan State fifth, and then Maryland and Rutgers breaking up the rear. I'm with you. I actually like where Penn State's at. I think it it, it all comes down to where they're playing. I think it obviously hurts that they can't have a whiteout against Ohio State. But even then, I, I think that Penn State has the talent and especially the returning production to overtake Ohio State this year. I think Michigan still stays in third. I think they win the head-to-head against Indiana and finish with, you know, six wins rather than five, or, you know, seven wins rather than six, depending on whether that 10th game gets scheduled. I've got Michigan State fifth, Maryland sixth, and Rutgers bringing up the rear at 0-9. So pretty even on that. Yeah, we're actually really close on that, which could be really good or really bad for you betters out there. As you know, if you listened to our podcast last season. But I've got to ask, John, before we head out this week, 
do you think any of these teams have a chance at the college football playoff if it is indeed held this year? First of all, who do you think is going to come out on top of the Big Ten this year? You know, we both had Penn State and Wisconsin, it looked like, playing against one another. Yeah, I think Penn State beats Wisconsin for the Big Ten title, and I really think both Penn State and Ohio State. And if Wisconsin can figure out their skill positions and get stability at quarterback, I think the Badgers have a legitimate shot as well. But I think Penn State wins the Big Ten, and I think they do get into the college football playoff, if there is a college football playoff, of course. That is always the caveat. I, I, I agree with you that we don't know what's going to happen with this season, if these games indeed even get played. But Penn State probably is the class of the conference this year. I think it all comes down to, to whether or not that Wisconsin defense is able to shut them down in Indianapolis or wherever they ended up playing a conference championship game, if there is a conference championship game. But, you know, I, I, I think that the only thing that could really hold it up is if one of those teams comes out with a loss. Because without that non-conference schedule, you have a lot of question marks about where that conference sits relative to the rest of the Power Five. And as we talked about in the Pac-12 uh, preview, I think we have those same sorts of issues. The Big Ten is likely to get more of the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, no, I agree with that for sure. Well, on that note, everybody, I think we've uh, exhausted our resources on what we can tell you about the Big Ten and how we think everything is going to shake out. So, once again, all I have to say to you all is wear your masks, continue distancing from one another. We're in this together, fans. If we're going to have college football in any guise and not have games start getting canceled like we're already seeing in Major League Baseball, we need all of us on board. So please, you know, take every precaution you possibly can. Let's kick this thing as soon as we can as a collective. And I'd love to actually be in a stadium with you all soon. So let's stick together. Thank you again for tuning in this week. It's always a pleasure to get to talk to you guys. And we'll be back next week to preview the ACC with you. So be sure to tune in next Wednesday and every Wednesday for the Saturday Blitz podcast. For John Mitchell, I'm Zach Bogolke. Thanks again.